0: If you had a physical newspaper in your hand from your own hometown what's the first portion of it that you would read so historically as we get older uh, the first section of a newspaper that people have historically read is actually the obituaries they uh, used to open the newspaper to find out who in town who in their city who in their state who in the nation who around the world um, had died and as you get older and older, the more interested you become in in the obituaries. And so I guess I'm wondering, how do we do that today? Like, how do we check the obits today? Do you do that? Is that a thing you do? How do you get your information about people who have passed away? And as we get older and older, and maybe the information about us is actually not as easily accessible Because it would have to be posted by a member of our family, and if I'm not following that family member because I don't know them, right? Like, do you know the granddaughter of your parent's best friend? Like, no, I don't know any of that. So I wouldn't have a way of finding out if a good friend of my mom's, let's say, had passed away or a neighbor that I grew up next door to. And so how do you get that information today? Like, I'm really very curious. You can text me, 877-933-2484. How do you find out if someone that you have known over the years has passed away? We don't have, I mean, we don't have local newspapers anymore that have obituary sections that are, like, big. So um, so here, here's today's um. And, you know, obviously, this is not everybody who died over the weekend. Right. But here here are a few. There were a lot of obits over this weekend. So here was one, Jimmy Buffett, Jimmy Buffett, 76, died as a result of a form of skin cancer in his home in Sag Harbor, New York. Um, I have read several obits uh, of Jimmy Buffett. My favorite one was actually one posted on the Facebook page of a friend of mine who lives in Miami, um, who grew up in Tampa And that actually then led me to find out that his family home had been purchased and then torn down. Like, that's such an interesting, like, way that we get into information um, about what's happening in the lives of people that we know and love. Um, There's nothing in Jimmy Buffett's obits anywhere that I read that has anything to do with a legacy beyond wasting away again in Margaritaville. That's quite a legacy, right? Does that capture does that capture the kind of legacy you would want? How about Steve Harwell? He was 56 years old. He was the lead singer of Smash Mouth, best known for um, a song called All Star, which you might know from the movie Shrek. They also did a cover version of the Monkees' I'm a Believer. Steve Harwell died of liver failure in his home in Boise, Idaho. He had been replaced two years ago as the lead singer for the band, that he formed in the 1990s, and they're on tour, and that tour continues. So as you might say in show business, the show goes on. There's nothing in any of the obits I've read about Steve Harwell about his faith or any kind of legacy beyond Smash Mouth. How about Bill Richardson? Bill Richardson also died um, this past weekend. Now, Bill Richardson lived a really extraordinary life, a life changing life, a life that was devoted to public service and devoted to um, helping Americans wrongfully detained abroad um, get home. Now, that's not like he set out to do this. It's not like he set out uh, early in his political career to become the guy, the guy that would go where nobody else would go to negotiate the release of an american wrongfully detained overseas. He was literally like in a meeting about something else in in North Korea when a US military jet crashed technically in South Korea but the the pilots um and the debris field extended across the border and one pilot died at the scene but the other one who was injured was actually taken into custody by the North Koreans. Bill Richardson who was a congressman from New Mexico at the time. He went he later became uh, the U.S. ambassador to the U.N., two terms as the governor of New Mexico. Um, but Bill Richardson, it was in North Korea at the time, and he refused to leave. He simply refused to leave um, until they would release this uh, American pilot and let him come home. Richardson spoke a number of languages, and he believed that through the hard, earnest work of diplomacy, people of any worldview could come to a place of peace with one another. So Bill Richardson spent his life um, securing the release of Americans um, over the years, most recently Brittany Greiner from imprisonment in Russia. Um, and it was like 20 years ago that he was giving an interview and he was asked, like, what are the driving forces to to do this to, you know? And he said, I, I live a life of liberation for others because I'm a person um, who loves my own family. And so my heart is broken by these families whose family member is wrongfully detained overseas, and you will hear tons of testimonies of people who are members of families who Bill Richardson loved them and came alongside them when their family member was detained abroad. But he also talked about his love of God cultivated in the Roman Catholic Church. Bill Richardson was 75. And then there's this obituary. Sarah Young. The world knows her as the author of Jesus Calling, Jesus Calling uh, sold more than 40 million copies worldwide since she wrote it 20 years ago. But Sarah Young, my guess is you would not recognize her face. She never did a book tour. She has no social media. She did not make public appearances. Um, you, you might not even recognize her name. But that would be okay with her because she was only ever interested in people knowing Jesus. She wants you to know Jesus to learn his sense of presence, to learn to hear him speak to you today through what he has already spoken. How the the word became flesh speaks through um, the word of God and the testimony of scripture and does so as the living word of God today by the power of the Holy Spirit. Sarah Young wasn't seeking to be a prophet. She wasn't speaking to speak a new word from God. She was seeking to lead us into devotional prayer where we could listen long enough with minds that were saturated with scripture so that we might hear God speak to us today in the midst of our need. That's what Jesus' calling was all about, is all about. So you're going to hear obituaries about Sarah Young, that, um, that she survived by her husband Steve, whom she met in seminary, that she mar- whom she married in 1972, that she survived by two children and six grandchildren. But it could be argued that Sarah Young is also survived by a legacy that extends into and th- through the lives of tens of millions of people around the world who have been led into closer fellowship with God through the words that she put on pages during her own devotional journaling as a missionary in Australia years ago while she was battling chronic disease. She is a woman who has a legacy. I tell you all of this today, like the obit section of the newspaper, to remind us that death comes. Obituaries will be written. Services will be held. And then... Our bodies will be committed earth to earth, ashes to ashes, dust to dust. And only that which we have done for eternity is going to last. I mean, yes, it's, it's possible people are going to sing songs like Wasting Away in Margaritaville that you wrote. But that's not the soundtrack in heaven. And it's possible that people will work for organizations that bear your name. Or drive on stretches of road that are named in your memory. But eventually, those buildings will be renamed. Those organizations will come to an end. And those roads will be widened and improved. And the sign with your name on it is going to go the way of all metal and paint. Do you want to leave a legacy to have an obit that extends beyond um, you, your name? Nicole Nordeman has a song called I Want to Leave a Legacy. And the chorus goes like this. I want to leave a legacy. How will they remember me? Did I choose to love? Did I point to you enough? To make a mark on things, I want to leave an offering, a child of mercy and grace who blessed your name unapologetically and leave that kind of legacy. What kind of legacy living are you doing today that's of eternal significance? You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. All right. I told you a little bit about Burning Man, the Burning Man Festival last week in our conversation with probably Daniel DeWitt. Um, And it's this event that takes place in the Nevada desert. And it's been um, going on now for uh, for decades. But in, you know, in the last decade or so, it's really just become this mammoth, pretty grotesque, um, debaucherous event. I don't know. I, I don't have anything nice to say about it. Nothing, in fact. Um, and it culminates in the burning of this huge effigy that's intended to look like a man um and anyway it got it got rained i mean i'll say it got rained out it's as if god opened the floodgates um and just poured forth on this event and you you see people i mean the, they're talking about and the testimonies related to you know being knee deep knee knee-deep in mud. Um, the the language on the organizer's website um, now says the exodus operations have officially begun. I think the, that the exodus story would be a good one for many of these people to read. Here's one of the things that was missed, completely missed in the midst of all of it. There was a double rainbow after all of these torrential rains in the middle of the desert, which, by the way, they they hold this in a dry lake bed. So, When you hear people like be so surprised that they got rained out, they got rained on and then they got rained out and then they couldn't get out of this place. Well, that's because they hold it in a dry lake bed. Uh, And so anyway, I have so many things to say about this, but I will just reserve my comments to this. God put the rainbow in the sky for a reason. And he's not going to bring a global flood again like in the days of Noah, but that doesn't mean that the rainbow has lost its biblical significance. God set it in, in the sky as a sign, his sign. And it does not mean what the world um, has perverted it to being in recent years. The rainbow means something. By it, God reminds us of our sin and our wickedness and our sinfulness and how we conceive generation by generation of greater and greater ways to... Um, to behave in ways that are wicked in his sight. And the rainbow is set in the sky as a reminder to God himself that he is never going to bring about a cataclysmic flood like he did in the days of Noah to condemn us of our sin, to pour out his wrath. And so for those of us who know the story of Jesus, the rainbow is an opportunity for us to point to the sky and say, God has dealt with sin in a way that is final in a way that we should be talking about today. Um, Because it's it's not the days of Noah anymore. It's the days of Jesus Christ. And let's be talking about the reality of sin and our sinfulness. And let's not talk about burning man. Let's talk about the man that was on a cross who rose from the dead and now reigns as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Let's talk about Jesus. Is your heart burning to share the good news of the gospel today with somebody else? Mine is. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. 150 million people, 150 million people actively use one particular app every month in the United States of America. I want that to be the Faith Radio app. How about you? If you're wondering how you could be encouraged in your faith at any time, anywhere, well, I got good news for you. There's literally an app for that. You can listen to Faith Radio live, any show on demand, no matter where you are at any time of the day or night. Download the free Faith Radio app right now. It's super easy. Just text the word APP to 877-933-2484 and click the link. Let's connect faith to life. So you are the light of the world You are an ambassador of Jesus Christ. You are a minister of reconciliation and an agent of grace. If you've looked at yourself in the mirror already this morning, is that the conversation you had? Is that the encouragement you gave to yourself? Because that is the truth. That is who you are. You are a child of God. If you are a Christian, um, you are much more than, um, than all the things the world might say about you or speak over you. So if um, if the world's been telling you lies about yourself uh, and you have begun to believe them, I want you to speak truth over yourself today. Stand in front of the mirror and remind yourself who you are in Christ Jesus. You are an agent of grace. You are a minister of reconciliation. You are the light of the world. Um, you are designed to shine. You are a member of the body of Christ. You are gifted and blessed. Um, God has... Created good works that he has set before you to do, and he has fully equipped you um, to accomplish his will in the world today. You are an ambassador of the king and the kingdom. And so your life is like an embassy outpost. And so you may hear um, in the headline news that the United States is quietly reopening, uh, reestablishing embassies in a range of small countries in regions of the world that we have, let's say, diplomatically neglected for a generation. So the the the, mm-hmm. the Seychelles in the Indian Ocean is one of these places, but we've also reopened embassies this year in Tonga and the Solomon Islands, and the State Department is set to reopen or open embassies this year uh, in the months remaining in this year in the Maldives, in the. Ven- Ven- Vanatu, mm-hmm. I'm going to have to learn to say that one, Vanatu, and Karabati. And you're going to say, I don't even know where those countries are. Yeah, it's because they're little. Um, and so we are opening embassies in places around the world where uh, China in particular has expressed itself in ways that has now brought those countries into the orbit of China. Um, and we want to see them influenced uh, a new By the United States. And so we've sent or we're sending ambassadors. And so I want you to think about the way that we have lost influence in places because we have abandoned the field in terms of this is now about, you know, American diplomacy around the world. So I want you to think of the way that we have lost influence because we have abandoned a post, because we have abandoned an embassy, because we have abandoned the field. And then I want you to apply that in your mind, to God's view of the world and the kingdom advancement of of the gospel. Where are the places where we have abandoned our post? Where there was a gospel presence, where the church had a footing, but it has lost that footing. It has lost that expression. It has lost that embassy outpost. Every physical church, every congregation that um, has closed up shop is an embassy that God's kingdom people have withdrawn from. So just think about any place that you know that you've ever seen a closed church, a church for sale, a church building and property repurposed for some secular use. That's what's happened, by the way, to U.S. embassies that have been closed around the world. In the Seychelles, the U.S. Embassy um, that was closed after the end of the Cold War is now um, a training center for people in the Seychelles who want to learn um, all kinds of things. In the meantime, China has been not only building embassies in these places, but building ro- roads and schools and hospitals and other things that the local population perceives itself to need. What is the Kingdom of Christ building? How are we participating in the advance of the gospel in this generation, embracing our call to be ambassadors for Christ in our own communities, in our own cities, in the United States of America, and yes, around the world. God is still making his appeal through us. And so how is God making his appeal through you today as an ambassador of Jesus Christ? You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. Hey, it's football season. I don't know if you've noticed that where you live, but it's football season. And there are a number of football storylines that we could lift up and we could pull the thread of uh, to have conversations that would connect what's happening in the culture to what's happening, let's say, in the life of the church and in terms of kingdom advancement. We just did that in, in terms of a conversation related to the United States reopening embassies around the world. Um, so what is a, a conversation that you could have about bridging, you know, bridging a conversation from football to a conversation about Christianity? Well, I can think of a few. One would be um, the way a team works and teamwork um, and the body of Christ and the way that um, we're working out our faith um, in a disciplined way. Um, so I think there are a number of of, of threads you could pull and storylines there. And our friends over at like the Fellowship of Christian Athletes, FCA, they do a good job um, pulling some of those threads. So they do so as well at Sports Spectrum. Um, but when I was thinking about uh, football, there's also like an offense and a defense, right? And you know who's on the offensive line and you know who's on the defensive line and you know what the game you, you know the game plan of the other team well enough because you've watched film of them to sort of know what their plans are. And so you, you know, you put up a defense, a good defense against a good offense. But as Christians, are we even putting out an offense today? Like we've allowed, we've allowed the church to become offensive. And we've been pushed back onto our heels into a defensive posture. And we don't even really seem to have a game plan of advancing the gospel together anymore. And it's that together part that we want to continue talking about. So we've talked with um, Brian Loretz uh, on an earlier occasion about his book, "The Offensive Church: Breaking the Cycle of um, of Ethnic Disunity," and it really is about advancing the gospel together, pushing beyond like mere like diversity conversations into a biblical vision for the unity of the body of Christ and the genuine advancement of the gospel in the culture today? Like, how do we get out there on our front foot? Stop playing defense and get on offense, um, even when the world finds us offensive. So we're going to continue our conversation with Brian Loretz up next. Um, one of the conversations we're going to have is the one about colorblindness. You have heard in the past that it's good to be colorblind. Um, that's actually offensive. We're going we're to talk about that next. Here on Mornings with Carmen. So in 1896, the Supreme Court ruled in um, a case called Plessy versus Ferguson. And, and that's where you can trace back the term colorblind. So in, S- Supreme Court Justice Marshall Hall Harlan um, wrote a dissent in the Plessy versus Ferguson case. Um, and in his dissent, he says the white race deems itself to be the dominant race in this country. And so and so it is in prestige and achievements and education and wealth and in power. So um, I doubt not it will continue to be for all time if it remains true to its great heritage and holds fast to the principles of constitutional liberty. But in the view of the Constitution, in the eye of the law. There is, in this country, no superior, dominant, ruling class of citizens. Our Constitution is colorblind and neither knows nor tolerates classes among citizens. That is uh, the first place that the word colorblind begins to influence the conversation about um, race here in the United States of America, and it colors the conversation that we have as Christians So joining us again today is Pastor Brian Loretz. We have talked with him on an earlier occasion about his book, The Offensive Church or Offensive Church, Breaking the Cycle of Ethnic Disunity. Brian, welcome back to Mornings with Carmen.
1: Always good to be with you, Carmen. Thanks for having me back on your show.
0: Absolutely. Can you talk with us about, um, you know, when we might say we might think it's a good thing to say that we're colorblind or that we, you know, that we don't see color Why is that not helpful when we're trying to value the differences among us today?
1: Well, I think the primary reason why it's not helpful, uh, Carmen, is it doesn't align with the scriptures. Um, And so when we talk about being made in the Imago Dei, which is the image of God, you know, David talks about Psalm 139, we are fearfully and wonderfully made, Um, and I think a healthy... Um, Anthropology, that is the doctrine of humanity, would say that that doesn't just include our spirits or souls. It also includes our, our bodies. Uh, when Jesus Christ rose from the grave, he rose in a resurrected body that very much had physicality to it. He told Thomas to, you know, to touch my hands, touch my side. Uh, John in Revelation chapter five. Now, this is probably the most telling in Revelation five, Revelation seven. John, who is exiled on the island of Patmos, says, "I looked up into heaven and I saw people from every nation, tribe, and tongue." Now, how can you tell on si- on sight? <clears throat> excuse me, differences in people groups unless you are literally seeing differences in color. And so hmm. that so re- what Revelation five and seven teach us is is that our new glorified bodies, which hopefully mine will have, a much faster metabolism. Uh, but they will come with color. And so if you're, you know, Korean uh, here, you'll be Korean in heaven. If you're black here, you'll be black in heaven, white here, white in heaven. Um, And so it's, God is not colorblind. And so for us to be colorblind, we're not aligned with God.
0: Yeah, I think that the God, God is not colorblind. Um, That really helps me like that. Remembering that, reminding myself of that, um, reacquainting myself with that reality. Um, I want to I think like God thinks about things. I want to see people as God sees them. And God sees the uniqueness of the individual. Um, he's the one who knit them together. He's the one that chose those particular strands of DNA for that particular individual. Um, and part of that is the color of their skin. And so I want to see the uniqueness of the person, um, which includes... You know their skin color um, and so that that challenges this um, this idea that we would walk <laughs> around colorblind. I also think that it helps me when i um, when I consider the different experiences that people have because of the color of their skin um and that that might lead us to a conversation in the culture about privilege or discrimination. I guess I'm wondering in the church, where does that leave us? Like, how do I um, how do I recognize the beautiful differences and then also recognize that because of the color of someone's skin, they have had a different experience of the world than I have had?
1: Well, uh, yeah, your your question is a beautiful one, Carmen, and I think. Uh, before we can address it, we have to frame it. And there's just a tension that people mm-hmm. are going to have to live in, especially as followers of Jesus. There's two extremes we're going to have to avoid. We've already talked about one extreme, which is colorblindness. And listen, I most of the time when people talk about being colorblind, uh, they posit it kind of as a virtue. And I I totally can sympathize with the sentiment. What they're saying is, Uh, I'm not discriminating. I'm not prejudicial. They've just gone too far to an unnecessary extreme. But we have to be careful of the other extreme. So on one hand, we've got kind of color uh, ignoring. On the other hand, we have color idolatry, Mm. where my, my sense of identity is ultimately posited in my race, my ethnicity. And um, you know, one of the one of the things that's very unpopular uh, is I have to remind my minority siblings: is it's very popular in our in our current culture to craft an identity around being historically oppressed. Now, are we have we been historically oppressed as black people? Absolutely. Should we talk about those things? Absolutely, because Carmen, we can't have relationship without truth, right? Mm-hmm. But. Ultimately, at the end of the day, who I am as a follower of Jesus Christ is not ultimately placed in my ethnicity. It's placed in the cross. Mm -hmm. So the cross doesn't, because of that, um, the cross doesn't call me to eradicate my ethnicity. Uh, And of course, I'm not called to idolize my ethnicity. I just have to live in the tension of subjugating my blackness to my Jesusness. And that's tension. I don't want to ignore it. We got to talk about it, absolutely. But at the end of the day, I am I am a child of God, a follower of Jesus Christ, and that trumps everything else in my life.
0: Um, we could we could make um, a thousand sentences that uh, that that use this framework. Subjugate your blankness. To your Jesusness. So right. in your case, the way you've articulated it is subjugate your blackness to your Jesusness. I would I would say similarly, I have to subjugate my whiteness to my That's Jesusness. Right. I also That's have right. to subjugate my Americanness to my Jesusness. I have to subjugate my femaleness to my Jesusness. Right. I have to subjugate my marriedness to my Jesusness. I mean, yes. the, the list or my singleness to my Jesusness. Yes. Um so or my I mean you know just helping people think through this if you're listening right now what is it that you need to subjugate to your Jesusness is it your joblessness is it your um you know is it your blackness or your whiteness or is it your native americanness what what do you need to subjugate to your Jesusness today um because that is that is the real tension um, I, I think that we could have that conversation, Brian, about family structure. We could have that yes. conversation about worship preferences. Like, what is it that we need to subjugate to our Jesusness? That yes. that is a, a really robust conversation starter.
1: Absolutely, it is. And uh, to your point, it goes in a thousand different directions. And I think one of the things we're feeling the most. Uh, today is the gender conversation, the political conversation. Uh, you could also throw in socioeconomic status. I mean, I think I think that's exactly what Paul's getting at when he would write the Galatians. That look in Christ, there's no there's therefore no slave nor free, no male nor female, uh, no Jew no Gentile. He's not denying distinctions. I mean, remember this is the same guy who gave specific instructions to husbands and wives and. Masters and so on and so forth. But to your point, um, all that stuff takes a far distant second place to the cross of Jesus Christ. and And I think that's that's one of the tensions that I feel with you know the the critical race theory conversation, which I do feel like there's some nuance there. But one of the things that I just say is out of alignment with the gospel is seeing everything through an oppressed oppressor binary. Mm-hmm. um that is at that is at odds with the cross again, I can't say enough. Has there been historical oppression? Yes, uh have there been you know a specific group of people who have not stewarded their privilege well and and let me just you know veer off the road just for a second because you mentioned it carmen um I, I I want us to tread lightly on the white privilege conversation, and I know this isn't very popular what I'm going to say, but i I think there's a strong biblical case for it. Uh, is there such a concept as white privilege? Absolutely, absolutely. Um, you know, there's recent articles of minority families who weren't pleased on the appraisal they got on their house, and so what they did was a thing that's very common called whitewash their house. What that means is you take down all the pictures of your black family, and you have a white friend stand in for you. This just happened in uh, Marin, California, and the appraisal comes back hundreds of thousands of dollars more. I mean, so. The concept of white privilege is a reality, and I'm not coming against it. What I am coming against is demonizing privilege for the sake of privilege, and that's very wrong. And my biblical case for that is Philippians chapter 2, uh, that great kenosis or self-emptying passage. Philippians 2, 1 through 11 is all about the privilege of Jesus Christ. Paul says, though he were in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He talked about how he emptied himself and humbled himself. If privilege for the sake of privilege is wrong, then Jesus Christ was wrong. No one came to earth more privileged than Jesus. The issue isn't privilege. It's the stewardship of privilege. What are you doing with the privilege you've been given? And I think all of us, to a certain degree, in different measures, have been given privilege. I mean, Carmen, I grew up in a two-parent home where both my parents are still married, 53 years. Both of them love Jesus. That gave me a little bit of privilege. Did I feel bad about that? No. What am I doing with that? And so white people should not feel guilty for being white, even in a country that to lessening degree still privileges them. What are you doing with that privilege? It's the stewardship. That's the question, Carmen.
0: That's so good. What are you doing with your privilege? I think about the way Paul used all the privileges that he had um, at points in time when it was necessary to, you know, tell somebody that he was a Roman citizen. (laughs) things like that. Like, what are you doing with your privilege? Um, are you Are you using whatever privilege uh, you have to advance the gospel? We're going to continue our conversation with Brian Loritz here in just a moment. Um, he is a pastor. He is the author of The Offensive Church, How Do We Get the Church Back on the Offense? Breaking the Cycle of Ethnic Disunity. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen. Thank you so very much. If you'd like to become a supporter today, just visit MyFaithRadio.com. And again, thanks for being a part of what we do every day at Mornings with Carmen. Continuing our conversation with Brian Loritz, you can connect with him at BrianLoritz, L-O-R-I-T-T-S dot com, and from there... Um, lots of good resources, including his most recent book, "The Offensive Church: Breaking the Cycle of Ethnic Disunity." Um, can we talk about love over tolerance? Like, tolerance seems to be <laughs> what we're called to by the culture, but love is what we're called to by Christ.
1: Oh, that's that's a great question. I feel like we could spend a whole week talking about that. Right? Uh, even the way tolerance is used today. Uh, That term has more significantly. You know, it used to be a couple hundred years ago that the idea of tolerance was the ability to disagree civilly with someone else. Um, Now that's completely changed where disagreement is seen as intolerance and tolerance has been kind of reimagined, redefined to be you got to think the way I think you got to agree with me. And if for some reason you don't agree with me, uh, now we're throwing terms around like um, like bigoted or uh, oppressing someone. And um, I just want to ask these people, like, you must not have kids, right? Mm-hmm. Like, I've got I've got three boys. They're young adults, 22, 20, 18. My wife and I are empty nesters. And, um, you know, all of my kids, I love them dearly. I love them. But, you know, I'm watching them from time to time make decisions that uh, I disagree with. Um, and yet I still love them. And so I think there, there, there is this incredible tension that we feel between these two terms. Tolerance is such a low ethic. I mean, think about it. I tolerate you. The Bible doesn't call us to tolerance. It calls us to love. And, um, you know, the ability to love someone, there's a standard there. And for the Christian, um, you know, within the household of God, our standard is is the Word of God. It's Jesus Christ. But even with those who are outside of the faith, we are called to love them uh, because they have been made in the image of God. They are fellow image bearers. And what helps me walk this out are are kind of two frameworks. One is, Uh, The example of Jesus in John chapter one, it says, John says, when I saw Jesus, I saw a man full of grace and truth. And again, I use that word tension. We have to hold these two things in tension. Uh, Grace without truth is compromise. Truth without grace is condemnation. And so I like to think of those two terms um, as kind of a rubber band. The real power of a rubber band is holding the two ends in tension with one another. And so the ability to Show grace and speak truth uh, to embody those things at the same time, I-, I think is an incredible picture of love. And that's what Jesus modeled. Jesus also modeled for us similarly, this whole framework of acceptance versus approval. So he could say to the woman caught in adultery, go in peace and sin no more. Um, I loved it. So he he calls it what it is. He calls it sin. Um, he, he doesn't approve of what she did, but the way he treats her, the way he handles her, there's this incredible sense of acceptance and belonging. And, and I think that's what we need to, to model to the culture in general, but especially to our friends in the LGBTQ plus community. Um, one of the most helpful things I'll, I'll end this question this way, one of the most helpful redemptive things, Carmen, that my wife and I have ever done is um kind of cu- uh, cultivated friendships specifically i'm thinking of a lesbian couple uh that we have gotten extremely close to tons of meals and um it, it, they they haven't changed my convictions but they've softened me in a lot of ways they've they've humanized them uh, where 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 before i would be tempted to otherize them and but in the middle of all this they asked me to do their renewal of the vow. and i said ah Am I allowed to disagree with you on something without being called a bigot? And that just led to a beautiful conversation and the friendship continues, even though I saw it differently and wasn't able to do what they asked me to do because what framed everything was a relationship. And I think that's what Rosaria Butterfield was getting at when she talks about the way to get to that community in specific, our friends in the LGBTQ plus community is through hospitality, which is really relationship.
0: That is so good. We could, um, we could spend, um, a long, long time talking just specifically about that topic. Um, I think we better, um, we better close this conversation, um, today and then circle back around again. Cause I know we're going to have follow up questions, um, and want to have a conversation even just specifically about, um, this, this, relationship you just described the conversations that you're having because these are real like this is rubber meets the road um reality for so many of us and that is really um really helpful so will you come back and we can till that particular soil again
1: absolutely I'd love to Carmen
0: yeah I just love that um hey on the tolerance front maybe you could just think about this for a minute the classical definition of tolerance all people are equal all ideas are not is that the cultural view of tolerance today, or has that been turned on its head where all ideas are considered equal? And if you disagree with that, then you are not equal. Yeah. All right, yeah, we're, uh, sure. we're going to continue yeah, our conversation yeah, in the yeah. future with Dr. Brian Loretz. Among other things, he's the author of The Offensive Church. That's like putting the church on the offense, but there's a little double entendre to uh, the title of the book because the church is offensive. We recognize that. Breaking the Cycle of Ethnic Disunity. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. <laughs> Wow, we're, um, we're pretty easily offended today. And so um, let me just remind you that as Christians, we don't take up offenses. We just don't. We just lay down everything about ourselves um, that, that would keep us from advancing the gospel. And so did you pick up an offense already today? Um, something that somebody said, something that you heard, and you took offense Um, yeah, let me just encourage you to lay down your offenses today. Like, we don't have, we don't hold on to the right to be offended. We just don't. As Christians, we lay it down. So I lay down my right to be offended today. I hope you'll lay down your right to be offended as well. Um, If I have offended you in any way, I sincerely apologize. Um, But it's your responsibility as the one who picked up the offense. So just think about that. Um, You actually have the choice whether or not to allow something to offend you Um, and so if you picked up an offense this morning let me encourage you to lay it down because it's now become a burden to you um it's 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 not a burden to the person who offended you intentionally or unintentionally um, but it has become a burden to you as the person who chose to pick up the offense so let me encourage you to uh, not pick up any offenses today just, just, just don't. Just be conscious of that and say, you know what? I'm not going to pick up offenses today. Um, if Jesus had picked up every offense along the way, he would have been so heavily burdened he wouldn't have been immobilized. So would have uh, the Apostle Paul and others along the way. So, um, so choose to lay down all of those uh, things that you might be tempted to pick up as offenses today, and move on, liberated by the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, who is alive and desires to. Um, to reach the world today through you as a point of light and a conduit of grace. Go be shiny, and I'll see you right back here tomorrow on Mornings with Carmen. Have a great day, and God bless. Thanks for listening to Mornings with Carmen LeBurge. Podcasts like this are available because of your support. If it's important to you to hear things that encourage your faith, click the link in the show notes to give now. And thanks!